This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a Miracle Made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver-infused fabrics that actually make temperature-regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not, like, getting too hot or too cold or whatever. You know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle Made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it, like, doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But More than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful, and it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made. Come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code FAKETHENATION at the checkout, and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today. You'll get 40% off. Use the promo code FAKETHENATION. Go to trymiracle.com slash FAKETHENATION. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fakethenation and use the code fakethenation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fakethenation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 291. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and where we act like we know who's playing in the Super Bowl. I am your host, Nagin Farsad, and I'll pretend to know a lot of stuff to get some free chicken wings. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about political mobilization in 2022 with actual pro tips on how to do it. We'll ask if old music is killing new music, and we'll dig into the fun new world of book banning. Oh my god, today's panel. Today's panel is not only just a super fun panel, but one of the smartier, pantsiest panels that I have assembled um, and that our producer Danielle has assembled. Uh, today, we're, we're going to be fun and others will be smart and I will preside over them <laughs> as they do that. I'm so excited um, to welcome the host of the podcast Words to Win By. I know her because uh, I met her as a political uh, researcher and consultant and just uh, was blown away by the stuff that she knows. Um, and you're going to know, too, by the end of this podcast, a little smidgen of it. Um, it is the wonderful Anat Shankar Osorio. Hey, Anat. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and joining us uh 
you've heard him on their show before. Folks, you love him on this show. Come on. He is columnist at the Daily Beast. He is the author of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From, uh, which is just out recently. He's the co-host of the show Democracy-ish, and he is the most awesome Wajahat Ali. Hey, Waj. Hello, hello. I promise not to be too nerdy, and if we get too smart, I'll do poop jokes. Thank you. And that we will keep you to that. Danielle's actually going to be recording like, you know, she's has the smart barometer going. So if we go off the rails, then just, she'll bring us Put me in, in coach. I'll, I'll do my part. <laughs> um, well, folks, before we get into it, I just want to remind people that you can join the Patreon for our bonus episodes of Fake the Nation. You could do that at patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show. For as little as $4 a month, um, you can get uh, free episodes. And from there on, there's other levels. You can get a bonus essay. You get a bonus mug, a bonus t-shirt. Um, and just the, uh, the, the inner um, joy of knowing that you're helping your favorite or top 20 favorite podcasts. <laughs> I don't presume. I don't presume to be in the top spot, guys. Come on. That, that was right, very well, that was very uh, immigrant child of you, which I appreciate. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It is. Um, never never think well of yourself <laughs> is the mantra I was raised on. Um, all right. Let's get into it with topic number one. So I do. I want to f- focus in a little bit on 2022 and, uh, you know, we can look at the horse race stuff and, and that in some ways is maybe the least interesting stuff. But what I really want to know is, like, how are we supposed to mobilize? Um, and before we get into that question, though, let's just take a quick, a broad glance at what's happening. There's like 34 Senate seats that are up for reelection. Um, interestingly, not all the Trump endorsed candidates have raised the most money. I thought I thought that was interesting. A lot of the um, this most recent quarter reporting just came out. And that was something that happened, for example, in Alaska League. Lisa Murkowski outraised the Trump endorsed candidate. Um, same in Alabama. And I mentioned those two states because they're very red. So it means nothing or it means everything. Who knows? Doesn't matter. But before we get into the mobilization question, do you do you either of you have anything kind of general to say about the picture, the 2022 picture that we're looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think the Senate is a very different beast and a different animal than the House. I think the House is where you get to go fully, fully access unleashed, unrelenting batshit. And that's pretty much what the House is for. And they perform that pretty regularly. I think that for like in terms of like your political discourse can be crazy. Is that what um, you mean? You can go farther off the rails in terms of the kind of candidacy you pursue because you're not trying to get a statewide vote. Right. And right. so it's in the House that we see a lot more of this MAGAism, this kind of. Right. The Marjorie folk, Taylor Green, Greens, et the Josh Hawleys, et cetera. But right. in the Senate, I mean, there's power to incumbency. Lisa Murkowski is sort of. Um, And it's funny, that power of incumbency, I think, is going to come back when we talk about why certain songs are popular or not. I'm going to try to make it tie it. I'm going to try to make it tie it. Oh, my God, you're going to do a Lisa Murkowski analysis onto a a music conversation. I love this already. the police of music or something. Hilarious. Will will Sting be offended by that comment or not? That's the question. I mean, probably. That's 
that's why I should just. Did they already sell their catalog? Stay in my lane. Has Lisa Murkowski sold her catalog is the big question. I mean, Lisa Murkowski has sold just about everything herself for parts. Like most of them, between but, pharma but she, uh, and not, oil, she has, sell, she has sold it moderately. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, not to bring you back um, to to the Senate, um, the, the she has sold it moderately because in the Senate you're expected to kind of uh, appeal to a broader swath. Well, you're supposed to genuflect at this altar mm. of bipartisanship, or at least most Democrats believe that you are. Actually, in point of fact, what the research shows uh, and what common sense shows is that bipartisan never took anybody out to dinner. And what people actually want is elected officials that deliver for them. And so when, just take a concrete for instance, Biden and Democrats keep referring to the infrastructure plan as the, quote, bipartisan infrastructure plan, what they're doing is actually granting permission and, in fact, handing points to the other side to go and do ribbon cuttings in front of bridges or, you know, road clearances or whatever, because they've touted this as bipartisan, when in point of fact, that's actually not the sales pitch that voters are most interested in. What they're interested in is what are you doing for me? How quick? Why? And, you know, how durable is it going to be? So it's a political instinct, but it is a political instinct mostly to Democrats' detriment. Uh, Wad, what do you, how do you see the, the 2022 election shaping up? So, so yeah, so I'm really curious about Georgia, and, and to see like what, if anything, Herschel Walker can do. Who is this? Who, by the way, used to be a football player, a very good one, but then now is endorsed by MAGA and Donald Trump to to prove that. See, we love black people. We have Herschel Walker, who is also anti-vaxxer and believes in green mist and is very far right, but has raised a lot of money. And of course, we have uh, Reverend Warnock, who uh, has been a fantastic senator for Georgia and helped. Uh, Democrats get that this that this brief 50-50 tie slash minor majority, right? So that's a very key one to see the strength of Trump when it comes to backing Herschel Walker in Georgia, which is also suffering from massive voter suppression because Republicans never, ever want a Reverend Warnock or Ossoff to ever, ever win again in Georgia. That's number one. Number two, speaking about the Trump effect, I'm really curious to see if his blessings on another extremist, and I'm using this word the way it's meant to be used, Uh, candidate Mo Brooks in Alabama, will that carry over? Because Mo Brooks, ladies and gentlemen, let's not forget, was, according to Ali Alexander, one of the planners of the January 6th Stop the Rally, violent insurrection. He said, you know, these are the three people who helped me, Mo Brooks, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs. And Mo Brooks also conveniently wore a Kevlar vest that day, because that's what... that's what you normally do when you're an elected official. You wear a Kevlar vest. Guys, I'm wearing one right now yeah, podcasting. Yeah, yeah, because you had no idea that there'd be violence. But this is why you wore a Kevlar vest. So he's being outperformed, or if you will, or like outdonated by his Republican rival. To, I'm very curious to see the Trump luster. Will it shine or will it wane yeah, with these two it's, races? This is, a big, this is a big question. Now, look, in the face of um, Trump luster or you know, whatever waning um, Trump doo-doo. Uh, so one of the big things I wanted to talk to you about was political mobilization. And and do you want to explain, well, so we met because I was writing political comedic ads mm. uh, or comedic political ads, if we want to speak English. Um, 
And uh, I mean, and why you- confine ourselves, really? <laughs> I mean, for real. And you came and um, and gave us a brief on what works and what doesn't work uh, in 2020. And I did that for. I mean, I don't know if listeners. I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I don't know how how open I was about writing it because it wasn't something I was like screaming at the top of my lungs. We're just sort of like quietly doing God's work, trying to win races um, through comedy, uh, but. You know, it was really remarkable. And what did you find in 2020 that you think is going to be helpful for us in 2022? Yeah, let me lay out a bunch of really critical points. So I often tell people that vote is a verb. And yes, I'm aware it's a noun also. And what that means is that it is a behavior, it is an action that we need people to take more than a belief that we need them to hold. This is very hard for politically motivated people to understand. They think, of course, people are going to vote. Of course, I'm going to vote. But voting is actually a matter of habituation. It is much more akin to flossing than it is to anything else. And so what we systematically see in testing And by testing, I mean really high bar testing, field testing, where we're not asking people to self-report. We're actually doing different kinds of interventions, whether that be the ads we serve people, the postcards we send them, and then we're measuring the voter file. So we're not asking, would this thing make you want to vote? We're actually checking. You got this Mm -hmm. set of ads. They got this set of ads. Was there a statistically significant uptick in who actually went out and did the thing? So... The number one thing that increases voting behavior is talking about voting. Mm. It's not talking about issues. It's not talking about candidates. It's actually talking about the act of voting itself. It's a little like flossing. The second thing I would say. Wait, I just want to I just want to take a quick moment to reiterate what you just said. The The number one thing that affects voting is talking about voting. That's. Amazing. And I had no idea. And that's uh, and I hope people really take that to heart so they could just casually bring up voting in as many different weird settings as they can possibly bring it up. The next thing, if it's OK to keep going, please, yeah, would let's be hear it. what I call the middle school theory of messaging. So people do the thing they think people like them do. Sometimes when we're talking about voting or any kind of behavior we'd like people to engage into, we try to make it really dire. We say, people really don't turn out in midterm elections. XYZ identity group is really, you know, not going to turn out. Latinos, you know, haven't been voting. Black people are dropping off. Whatever identity group, fill it in. And we try to make people feel like, well, I must do this thing because it's very urgent because my kind of person is not doing it. In point of fact, that demobilizes. Mm. What actually works is to say, we're turning out in record numbers. Our vote is our power and our voice. And young people are taking to the ballot like never before. Or, you know, we marched to defend black lives. We turned out to make to to make our voices heard. And we will do it again to deliver the leaders, to elect the leaders who will deliver for every single one of us, no exceptions. So it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing where you want to tell the target group, this is the thing that your identity group already does. That's called social proof. Another thing that really works 
is making the voter the agent of the sentence. So right now, I don't think it's going to shock anyone who's listening. The Democrats deliver and Democrats are going to do all this great stuff for you. That's a hard sell at this particular moment. We're not getting a lot of uptake when we try to say things like that. But But build back better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'd love to invite you to some focus groups. If you would like to feel badly about America, you can watch average Americans of all shapes, sizes, and types respond to things. Yeah, if you're feeling too happy. Um, So instead, if you look, for example, at the successful message of the Georgia runoffs, you rightly so brought up Georgia, incredibly important state, Warnock and Ossoff, both incredible senators, Warnock up again, as you said, Stacey Abrams running again for governor, fingers, everything crossed, God willing, all the things. Inshallah, inshallah, Georgia. Inshallah, inshallah. Um, The message there, one of the dominant top lines was our work is not done yet. So they had just moved people, the organizers, relentless, badass, amazing organizers, worked, 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 worked through November. And then suddenly they got a turnaround, no time for rest to do it again in January. And what they said to the voters that they already had relationships to, because this is the long term work of organizing, right? It doesn't happen overnight is our work is not done yet. They didn't say, Ossoff and Warnock are going to do all this magical stuff for you. They will be our heroes and they will deliver everything. Of course, you have to talk about the candidates. But the main thing we need to remember is that what you're trying to get the person on the phone, through the text message, at the door, however you're doing it, to do is engage in an action. Mm. And so voting messages that make the voter the agent, even something pithy like Mitch better have my money, which was also sort of a meme and a trope and rightly so in Georgia, Mitch better have my money is still a voter agency message. It's not... Ossoff and Warnock are going to make sure you get your check. So vote for them because they'll deliver your check. It's you have the power. You're the one. Mm. And so the last thing that I would say is that in the doom and gloom and despair that I think all of us feel for 55,000 very, very understandable reasons and the knowledge that the incumbent party usually takes a shellacking in the midterms. That's reality. We know that to be the case. The thing I really want to underscore for anyone listening is that what makes 22 different than every previous election is that we have just come off in 18 and 20 a voter surge that is larger by almost double than any increase in voter participation that we have ever seen since Reconstruction, since we started measuring. We're talking about 13% more people turning out. And so what that means is that though our task is hard, and I am not delusional about how hard the task is, Instead of having to do turnout for the first time, which is very hard, turning people who've never voted into first timers, our task now is what I call returnout. We got to get those people who've done it before so they have some experience under their belt to come back. And that is, relatively speaking, slightly easier. We also know 
that in 2020, Joe Biden won 2016 voters by around two points. He won first timers, 2020 first timers, by nearly 12 points. Wow. Wow. That means that those new voters are fundamentally more democratic. And so it's our job to take those folks, I call them vital voters, our 1820 surge voters. I call them vital voters. I also never, ever, ever call anybody non-voters or low propensity. Again, social proof is real. You don't tell people you're a non-voter. You tell them you're right. a high potential voter. You tell them everyone is a voter. We just haven't reached them yet. Well, I mean, so those me, are and Nagin, me and again prefer masochism and being humiliated. Uh, that kind of motivates <laughs> us. But Jesus, I think for most yeah, Americans... How are you adjusting these four points to immigrants' children? You non-voter... Why can't you vote as well as a not? You're like, I'm sorry, I'll try harder. I'll I'll vote harder. I know. Can you work out a system where I get straight A's for voting and then I will really fucking turn it out? You know what I can say to you? I can say Mm. to you something my parents lovingly said to me. Uh, why why you have a minus uh, the minus it's for negative brain cells does that feel good does that bring you back oh, that's, that nice. is I feel like y- we shared the same parents are you a long lost sister what's happening <laughs> um, no this is amazing and 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 just uh, watch what did you what do you take from those four incredible points that I want to now sing at the top of my lungs at every? No, I mean, that's you have actual work. Anat's done the work. She's actually talked to voters. She's seen what works. Right. And so I think oftentimes when we're, you know, like I said, I'm in Virginia, there's an incestuous D.C. bubble. I will I could prefer to call it the D.C. New York City bubble. It's a media politics business bubble. And they oftentimes talk to themselves. They're dating each other, divorced each other. And the talking points that are kind of floated oftentimes are completely divorced from the reality on the ground. And they just, since they only like talk to each other, you sometimes go into that bubble and you're like, you guys have literally no idea what you're talking about and you are running the party and the country and I'm terrified. So I think these practical data-based points that she's given actually reflect that A, talk about voting, don't take it for granted. Uh, B, you have to give an optimistic, inspiring message to people. Don't treat them like shit because not all kids are children of immigrants like us. Uh, (laughs) Three, give them a sense of agency. Don't give them this pie in the sky belief that the Democrats will save the day because they can't. And also the thing that I think that really struck with me, and I want to ask Anat and you guys about this is, uh, you know, George is an interesting example. Massive voter suppression, history of racism, right? right? A hard right conservative, I think, slight majority, maybe slight minority now, but you saw grassroots activism and community organizing led by black voters, specifically black women who are the national base of the Democratic Party. And historically, we have seen that Democrats, once they get in power, they put black people and brown people second, and they court like Chet and Karen in the Rust Belt, who historically have not gone for them since the 50s, right? And then you see terms like wokeness, don't be too woke, don't be too progressive. And what's really fascinating to me, and the question I want to ask and not my, my final kind of question here, how to round it out, is you hear the Carvels and others say, you're too woke. Don't use the word progressive. Stay Basically, stay away from the blacks and the darks and what they're whining about, the police reform and you know the voting rights. But my take on that is actually, if you address these issues and you create a message that's race and class-based, you can get this multiracial democracy. You shouldn't run away from these messages. You should kind of embrace them, but in a sense, define them. And, and I feel like Democrats, even now with these upcoming races, to the start of your question, uh, Nagin, they're like, no, 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 don't use the word woke or policing reform or voting rights. Translation, 
put black and brown people issue second, chase whites. Uh, Anad, am I off here? Or... Uh, are you an audience plant? Did you come from, <laughs> like, are you just doing my PR? So... Since 2017, I and an incredible crop of others credit here, big shout out to um, Berkeley Law professor Ian Haney Lopez, who literally wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics, Heather McGee, who recently wrote some of us, the three of us together originated a project that is called the race class narrative, which funny enough is a phrase you just threw out yourself. And we never talked before. Look at that. I swear we haven't talked. Um, (laughs) So... Everything that you're saying, it's sort of like there are so many words that want to come out of my mouth at the same time. So first of all, politics is not solitaire. And this fantasy that what you're calling the D.C. New York bubble exists in is that what people think about Democrats is made out of what Democrats say. If that were true, I'd be on vacation. In fact, as we know, the former senator from MasterCard, now, you know, once vice president and now president, is a, quote, socialist, right? Chuck Schumer supports, Mm. quote unquote, defund the police. Regardless of what Democrats actually say, that's not where public opinion is formulated about them. Would that were the case? It is simply not. So first, we have to recognize that people's political judgment is shaped by what the opposition says about the candidates, the party, what the media says, et cetera, et cetera. So this notion that we could just, quote, not talk about race as if we hold the entire set of microphones, when in fact, when we are silent about race, the unrelenting dog whistling, the race baiting, the anti-CRT, the book banning, the like trans kids, abortion, whatever new thing they decide to throw in there, whether it's a dog whistle or the gender version, a wolf whistle, as I like to call it. They're going to keep peddling division because it is all that they have. The only trick that they have up their sleeve is divide in order to conquer. And if the left doesn't recognize that, when we do not recognize that, we allow that conversation to go unanswered. And so it's everything that you said. When you look at the places where I focused most in 2020, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, I also happen to be from Wisconsin. How did we deal with this? How did we deal with it in Minnesota in 2018, the epicenter of Islamophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-Black because of the Somali refugee population? What did we do? We employed a race class narrative. We employed messaging that was race forward, and we connected their use of racially coded speech as a form of division in order to aid and abet plutocracy. So what does that sound like in actual words? If you're talking about crime, you're talking about policing, and I'm making this message up from scratch, so it's not copy edited. But you say, whether we're black or white, Latino or Asian, native or newcomer, all of us want our loved ones to come home safe to us at the end of the day. But today, a handful of politicians and the corporations and billionaires that support us try to divide us from each other, making us fear each other based off of what we look like or where we come from so that they can give the people sworn to protect and serve us a free pass when they target, harass, and even kill black people 
in our country. It's time we see past their division and recognize we know what keeps us safe. It's having robust health care. It's having great schools for our kids. It's having communities where all of us have the support and resources that we require. By joining together across race and place, we can make this a place where freedom and justice are for all of us, and all of us make it home to the people we love. Something like that. That's a race class narrative message. Folks, the, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to move on. But this is one of those segments that I like definitely think you should rewind and listen to again and like get the the words you just heard in your system. You mm. know what I mean? And when I first heard about the race class narrative, that's exactly uh, the reaction I had. It was like, how how do I make this kind of language a part of like the way I, want, I, I talk about these things? It's really, really, really incredible stuff. Uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, We'll talk about banning things. This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by Aura Frames. That is right. Uh, From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an Aura Frame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, well. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an Aura Frame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm-hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code HEADGUM at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back and we're ready for topic number two. So, okay, here's a crazy stat. Um, A group of Texas school districts reported 75 attempts in the first four months of this school year to censor children's access to books. But the attempts in the same period four months of last year was just one. There was just one attempt last year at this time. 
So book banning uh, is like a hot new trend right now, um, but it's not new. There are periods throughout history where we go through these cycles of wanting to ban books. I mean, I guess my question right now, Waj, is like, why is it happening now? Uh, my take on this is we're witnessing the death rattle of white supremacy across the globe, which has transformed into a death march. And you're witnessing in the United States of America, where one of the major two political parties is now a white nationalist party, which is echoing the literally the, the conspiracy theory of white nationalists, the KKK. Nazis, which is the replacement theory, which is echoed almost daily on Tucker Carlson's show, the top rated show on Fox, which says that black and brown folks and immigrants and LGBTQ and feminists are degrading and replacing Western white civilization. And they're funded by, wait for it, the supervillains of all time, the Jews, right? That is the prime. Yeah, Anat. So Anat's funding hey, Anat. it. So but you know, you know what's really fascinating about this is the following: it's just, this because it's it's the it's the key to understand why all of this book banning is happening and voter suppression. What's the core of it? it it's it's part and parcel of America's dark heart, which is white supremacy, which is only one person can be on top is the white Christian man. We are the ones who birthed this nation, as Rick Santorum said in his revisionist history. We came here. Sure, there were some natives, but we were the ones who brought life here. And we were the ones who brought democracy. It was manifest destiny. And God chose us. Prosperity gospel. And we brought forth democracy and, and, and wealth and success. And those savages were there, but it was us who did it. And in our benevolence, we allowed the Nagin's and the Anats and the others to come, but they're not grateful. They don't know their place. And instead, <laughs> what they're trying to do is replace us. And there's no way that these darkies can actually be smarter than us. There's no way. So how did these blacks and these browns get farther ahead of us? How come they're the vice presidents? How come they're on TV? Of course, it's not because they're smarter than us. It's the Jews. It's the Jews like George. So I mean, I'm not even joking. It's the Jews who are the nerve center in the global center, right? Oh, so, funny. so you're seeing when it was the election of Barack Obama, that was the realization of this nightmare that a fact that a black man with a black family was elevated to the White House, a black man replaced white presidents. How is that possible? With the election of Barack Obama, we saw the elevation of hate groups the, to the point where it was like the record number of hate groups. We've seen the mainstreaming of all this hateful ideology, literally now contaminating the conservative movement. And now what we're seeing, and I, and I mentioned this, this is the way it's all connected. In the summer, I wrote this piece of the Daily Beast saying, be careful of the CRT narrative. Democrats, you're making a mistake by ignoring it. See, what Anat said was accurate. I said, I'm in Virginia. I said, Youngkin's gonna win. Terry McAuliffe, this moderate old white man who is the anti-woke safe candidate, Nagin, right? He thought he could waltz in. And I said, you guys aren't paying attention to white anxiety and suburban fear. Youngkin came in, manufactured the dog whistle of CRT, which is not being taught. Christopher Rufo, who is a right-wing activist, like a bad James Bond villain or a very helpful James Bond villain, openly said, we're going to make CRT into the villain where we can Trojan horse all of our fears. That's what they did. We told everyone, guys, you're protecting your child from these books written by black authors. It's going to be a Trojan horse. And now what we're seeing just today as we're recording this is the don't say gay policy in Florida. Stop the woke act in Florida, the banning of books about the Holocaust and any conversation again that makes the white majority uncomfortable about confronting white supremacy will be quashed. And so now you're seeing this in voter suppression and the book bans. Thank you for my TED Can talk. Can I? No. <laughs> ask me a simple question. Amazing. Sorry. That was amazing. No, I mean, so... 
obviously, like I'm on the side of, uh, you know, a country can heal, you know, the sort of um, W.B.E.B. Du Bois uh, position of like recognizing our historical truths Mm. and reckoning with them. Right. Um, The author, uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who I hopefully am not butchering their name. Viet Thanh Nguyen. Viet Thanh Nguyen um, said, we have to try to make our nation confront what it doesn't want to remember. If I'm a member of the, uh, you know, if I'm a conservative, I might say, but our children are too young to confront these things. It, that seems to me like an argument I, I might make. Um, what would you say to to that conservative person? Like, for example, the the mouse, um, is it mouse? I've never actually known how to say it, the name of that book. Okay, so the, that's the, the name of the Art Spiegelman book that was, you know, that won a Pulitzer Prize in the day. And it's it's a, it's a not an animated, which is an illustrated um, Holocaust fable. And, um, and it was just banned in Tennessee. Um, and he said, look, this is disturbing imagery, but you know what? It's disturbing history. And again, I would wonder what what responsibility do we have towards this level of you know disturbing stuff being in front of our so children? I've, I have three kids and they're three caramel mocha skin kids with multisyllabic names, <laughs> uh, brown skin kids. <laughs> and I'll tell you, we're all children of immigrants. I was born and raised here. The first time I discovered racism when I was five and I went to preschool. And that's where you learn your place in the American hierarchy, because someone comes up to you and says, why is your skin color the color of poo? And you're like, what? And then I spoke, you know, I didn't speak English. I was in ESL. And so for the rest of us, we are forced to confront this thing called racism at the age of five, Nikki. Okay. And we survive it. My children, ages seven, five, and two, are living during a pandemic. My daughter is immunosuppressed because she's a cancer survivor. They wear masks. They sanitize their hands. Even my two-year-old wears a mask. And my seven-year-old and five-year-old are vaccinated. And my wife and I have had conversations about them, about why we do what we do, because there's a pandemic. They understand it. They're sensitive. They get it. When it was George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd two years ago, my wife and I sat my children down, who were at the age now, I think, six and four at that time. We explained to them what was happening. They understood it. They were appreciative. Our children have the capacity to understand these tough topics. You and I went to school and not went to school. We learned this. This is not about the kids. This is about their parents freaking out and their per- parents having the quote unquote economic anxiety of black and brown people having the audacity to try to dream of equality. And what we're seeing is a retrenching of the American narrative while the rest of us are trying to expand it. Last thing I'll say, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Just look at civil war, <laughs> reconstruction, Jim Crow, segregation, KKK. Uh, look what's happening in Alabama just two days ago, right? Supreme Court, five to four decision. When it came to a chance of giving voting rights to black people, it's like, no, 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 we're going to dilute voting rights. Anytime in this country where people of color or those who are marginalized expand and stretch the country to accommodate the rest of us as co-protagonists, the forces of white supremacy engage in this type of over dog whistle. And the latest manifestation of it is literally censoring, erasing, and banning books that tell the true story of America because it makes those people, it not only makes those people in power uncomfortable, it forces them to confront the reality of white supremacy and forces them to stand either for it or against it. And you don't want to give up your privilege. So what you'll do instead is ban it. So I would just add to that other than just plus, 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 is that 
the the last question that you asked, Nagin, is, you know, what do you say to that conservative parent? In point of fact, I can tell you, we have just completed rounds and rounds and rounds of research precisely on this question of how you put forward a case for equitable, holistic, correct, accurate public education in the face of this anti-CRT nonsense. And this is case in point example of how the right and the left do message testing and polling completely differently. When the right did their polls, however many months ago, before Chris Rufo and everything that you highlighted, when people were asked, how do you feel about critical race theory? I know, we did focus groups. People were as likely to say to us, uh, critical race theory, is that where you are critical because people talk about race? Or is that, <laughs> people had no idea. It's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not a term like death panel. My black husband is, literally didn't know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people were like, I don't know what that is. So if you're a right-wing pollster and you do that polling or you do that focus grouping and people are like, I don't know what this is, then your conclusion is like, sweet, we're going to use that as a vessel and mm. we are going to input meaning into it. There you go. If you're a Democratic pollster, not me, to be clear, but if you're most of them, you're like, oh, the, the voters, they don't like this. This isn't where the, quote, mythical median voter is who happens to be some old white dude in some Midwestern diner. Which, by the way, there is no median voter when the electorate changes composition in every election. By definition, you cannot have a fixed median if you are altering the composition of the totality. That's math. So Democrats, in contrast, are like, oh, we'll do a poll to check the temperature. Oh, people don't like this. People aren't into this. The job of a good message isn't to say what's popular. It's to make popular what there we need go. said. There you go. So what do you say to that conservative voter? I can tell you, you say, you know, I'm a public school parent. I've got two kids. And it seems to me that whether we live, whatever our zip code, whatever our background, whatever our color, most of us believe that kids deserve to learn the truth of our past so they can reckon with our mistakes, understand our present and create a better future. I don't know about you, but I know my kids, and they're pretty strong and resilient. And they not only can handle the truth, they deserve it at an age-appropriate level. What I seem to be seeing is a handful of politicians who know that they have endangered our children's lives by lying about masks and vaccines subjected them and all of us to this prolonged pandemic because they refuse to do what is right. And these very same politicians who have refused to fund public schools the entire time that they've been in office, they're hoping we'll look the other way. While they destroy our kids' future, they think if they can distract us with lies about what our teachers are teaching then we will let them get away with robbing every single one of our kids of the education that we would want for our very own. You know, I see straight, straight past this. And if they think that my child needs to be protected from books, but exposed to bullets, they've got another thing coming. Because Ooh, I know what kids nice. are capable of. 
And the education that I want for my own is the education that I want for every child in this country. So there is a thing you can say. Yeah. I Again, um, I could talk about this for hours. Uh, and again, another set of responses from Waj and Anat that you should go back <laughs> memorize and then just memorize them but folks uh let's move on to the next topic i also just want to say a lot of these books that are getting banned then become bestsellers and especially on amazon and i just want to say that's totally great that you want to then go buy that book but don't do it on amazon go to your local bookseller why are you doing it on amazon come on go to bookshop.org guys come on come on okay you've heard me you've heard me kvetch about this a million times before let us move on to topic number three so we wrote a piece by ted goya in the Atlantic called Is Old Music Killing New Music? And we wanted to grapple with this question. And I just want to start with some basic facts. According to the piece, old songs now represent 70% of the U.S. music market. Wow. And the new music market is actually shrinking. Um, the, but in fact, the 200 most popular new tracks now regularly account for less than 5% of total streams. Um, Waj, were you uh, surprised? I, I was totally shocked by this. I had no idea this was going on that this was a trend where where, where were you at I, I was slightly surprised by it but you know good music lasts number one but at the same time i was thinking about it i'm like the new music kind of sucks and number two <laughs> number two you know the last two years we have a pandemic that has killed five million people it's been kind of tough for people to go tour uh djs parties clubs so that makes true, sense and true. people are like you know people are literally resorting back to what they once knew, those old vinyls and CDs and cassette tapes and nostalgia gives them sense of comfort. But the hope I have here is like, you know, as long as there's human beings and there's a new generation, there's going to be creativity and growth. And so this is a disruption. And so all the crap music that we've had to endure recently, I think we're going to get a new trend that is probably going to launch as a result also of this remarkable once in a lifetime pandemic that is shaping and influencing a new generation. So just just wait. I feel like this is intermission before a, a rebirth. Um, and now, did you know, like, in, in fact, in the, basically the, the Grammys uh, announced that they were being postponed um, and kind of nobody cared. I actually didn't even know that until I read. Neither this did piece. I. No clue. Viewership for the for for the Grammys collapsed by fifty three percent from the previous year, from eighteen point seven million to eight point eight million, which seems like just a huge decline. A decade ago, forty million people watched the Grammys. So, would it? What do you? You know, um, Wajat thinks it's it's a it's a pandemic um, response. Uh, what, where are you at on this? Yeah, so let's let's talk about topics for which I am systematically completely unqualified <laughs> on which to opine, <laughs> but which will not stop me. So here is my armchair psychologizing based on yeah. what I do know. Um, it's essentially kind of a permutation of what Waja said, but a little bit different because it's related to the pandemic. What we know of when people are in a state of high anxiety and high agitation is that they seek out the familiar, mm -hmm. right? So we all know this concept of quote unquote comfort food. Comfort food, if you actually boil it down, is whatever food you grew up eating. Yep. So we've been told that comfort food is like, you know, pot roast and mashed potatoes. Not in my house. Like in my house, it's eggplant salad and, you know, schnitzel. And like I grew up. My parents are Israeli. I actually was born there. Comfort food is whatever they fed you when you were little. That is comfort food to you. So it might be tacos, right? It might be... Ratatouille. Right, ratatouille. Whatever it was at your house. And whenever people are in 
sort of acute distress or especially in a prolonged period of unknowing of not being able to count on what's tomorrow going to be like, what's going to happen, we automatically seek the familiar. Because what the familiar does is it creates something that we call cognitive ease. It's essentially like when I say to you, da, 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 and your brain goes, da, da, you don't got to work for it. You don't have to turn on your higher order reasoning, what is sometimes referenced as system two thinking. So songs that are familiar, melodies, tunes, lyrics that don't cause your brain to do additional work, they actually create a payoff for you. Because you feel like you are co-creating the experience because you know what the singer or the band, et cetera, is about to say. And that actually gives you a little tiny dopamine hit because our minds are predictive machines. It's part of the reason why comedy has a set pattern, right? Set up punchline, set up punchline. And so I would guess that this this thing of people seeking out older music. I mean, I think it also has to do with the music industry and the fact that people don't buy CDs anymore and that all of these platforms are just giant rip-off con machines and they're destroying artists, just like Amazon is destroying book selling, as you noted. I think that also must have to do with it. It's, it's probably capitalism. But in addition to it being capitalism, I think that this natural tendency to seek out what is familiar, which, by the way disturbingly is also the reason why misinformation, disinformation is so effective. It's because whatever is repeated more often is rated to be not just more true, but also more likable. Messages that right. are familiar. I mean, it, the, vote, the, the vote, other, vote, the other vote. weird thing, <laughs> the other weird thing about that is um, that there's a, the risk of uh, copyright lawsuits right. is greater since the blurred lines decision in twenty. What was that? Twenty fifteen. Um, and so apparently, there's a little bit more. There, you know, there's a little bit more fear with like producing music that might be using recognizable loops or whatever, or you know, similar loops. So there's like that. That thing that's working. The other thing is right now major labels are just investing in people in their 70s like literally artists in their 70s capitalism. and their musical their music and that that goes to the capitalism idea and then the other thing that i think is happening is that technology is intervening so that algorithms are feeding you the thing that you all that you're listening to a thing and then the algorithm is feeding you something that sounds like that thing i have a long you know people i'm one of these people that still really like loves the radio the straight up radio because i i like when someone curates some shit and I don't and it's not a it's not a machine curating it because when you do go down that like uh Pandora-ish like rabbit hole at the end it just sounds like you're listening to a soup you know what I mean you've listened to a similar thing so many times it feels like nothing and and I love a radio DJ for that reason like tell me what you think uh be the artist be the curator for my my earballs and then the other weird thing is that the article also talks about is just the actual quality of the music because we rely so much on computers to make the music now um that it 
it doesn't doesn't have the same Phil Collinsy, you know what I mean, like gravitas um, that some people are seeking. By the way, not a Collins fan. I don't even know why I use him as an example. What's wrong with but Phil I, Collins? I will, no, I know. I don't mean to. I don't mean to dump on the man. Seems very nice to get that comedy in there. <laughs> I brought the mood way fucking down. So you're taking one for the team. <laughs> in my last film. Um, Third Street Blackout, uh, available streaming on Peacock. Um, Gabby Alter, who re- wrote the theme music for this uh, podcast as well, uh, we he wrote all the music for that movie. Um, it, you know, with the exception of a handful of tracks, and that music that movie is just music. It I am huge on putting music in my films. That movie is just music, music, music. And one of the things that happened when we were going through these, I mean, we would change key and and rhythm, and we we did so many minor minor changes to make this thing right and one of the things that I hated was when a song sounded too clean Mm. and we would go in and make it sound messier because financially we could only afford to use the computers to make the music but I wanted the listener to have the experience that they were listening to like an actual studio recording with instruments you know so it's like we go in and dirty it up and dirty it up some more and does this sound right let's add some room tone because it's just like I wanted to achieve that and I wish I I could have afforded you know afforded a large orchestra so there's just a lot um there's so many different factors in addition to just it being a trend right now like that i do think you know what you talked about earlier like this is a pandemic trend that and and to your point and out of like the the familiar is a trend and then the new can also come back and be a trend you know the way it normally is you know you're saying the imperfection of the human experience right the 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 feelings the touch the taste the smell live gatherings the when everything wasn't so smoothed out vinyls tapes cds and especially like the fact that we're craving that human experience and touch during a pandemic and a lockdown which then brings us back as Anat was saying to that sense of nostalgia longing and security and music is just a reflection of that a quick dopamine hit that makes you feel good the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Phil Collins is a mac and cheese. And I and I understand that. In the air tonight. Um, <laughs> all right, folks, that we have run out of time. And this was so fun and so enlightening. Um, I would love for the people of Fake the Nation to be able to follow you and all the wonderful things that you do. Wajahad Ali, where do they do that? And please remind us the name of your book. My book is called Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American, which just came out. Uh, it got good reviews. My mom says it isn't bad. So that means you should you should <laughs> buy it immediately. Uh, and you can find me on the Twitters at Wajahatli, also weekly column at The Daily Beast. And uh, I was inspired by Nagin, and I'm now co-hosting the weekly podcast Democracy-ish with my f- fabulous co-host, Daniel Moody. Um, you know, subscribe to Democracy Ish, but buy the book and then remember, buy it from a local bookseller. <laughs> you will, you will one hundred percent enjoy this book. Anat, where do people find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Anatosaurus, the famed dinosaur, and also just sounds like my full name. And I have a narrative podcast called Words to Win By. Every episode shows you a campaign we won somewhere in the world and how we did it. We take you backstage to look at the messaging, to look at the ads, to look at the research that we did. Proud to say that two of the episodes actually we released entirely in Spanish as well, covering winning abortion in Argentina and an incredible congressional race in the DR. Um, But 
how we won Wisconsin, the Georgia runoffs, lots and lots and lots of how we can actually win things and the messaging to do it. I also wrote a book once upon a time called Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. You can guess what that covers. And (laughs) all of the messaging advice that I was riffing off, the race class narrative, other empirically tested research, we make everything public, we make everything open source. So you can find it on my organization website, which is asocommunications.com. Messaging guides, ads, maybe even an ad that Nagin helped write. Um, <laughs> and all sorts of resources for all of you who want to figure out how to talk to other people. Um, folks, I, I cannot recommend a not enough. I, I was so um, impressed by her and, and all the work that she does when I first met her. And I'm just so like happy that I was able to get her on the show. You guys all know where to find me and all of the things that I do. Um, is there anything like new that I want to remind you guys about? I don't know, but maybe next week. But I would love to thank all of the wonderful people who make this show possible. That's our producer, Danielle Jones-Wesley, our sound engineer, Stephanie Aguilar. Our theme music was written by the amazing Gabby Alter. And as always, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Um, it helps people find the show. I'm going to come back uh, in the next couple of weeks with more reviews that you've written. Thank you so much for doing that. You can email us at fakethenation at headgum.com. Your emails have been coming in. Thank you so, so much for sending those uh, races to watch. And uh, you can join the Patreon for bonus content at patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad. We will be back in your earballs next week. That was a HeadGum Podcast.